about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. So we're going to do Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman." For she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And now Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 9. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, the crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Well, can I invite you to pray <clears throat> as we uh, begin to think about those words? Almighty and everlasting God, you are always more ready to hear than we to pray. And you constantly give more than either we desire or deserve. Pour down on us the abundance of your mercy, forgiving us those things of which our conscience is afraid, and giving us those good things which we are not worthy to ask, except through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. If I were to ask you what part of the Christian faith clashes most with the world around us, I suspect many of us would answer without hesitating sexuality. The assumptions and ideas about sex that are now held by many people, taught in our schools and therapists and reflected in law, are a long way from the classic Christian understanding 
that sexual activity should be reserved for marriage between a man and a woman. A marriage that is intended to be and ought to be lifelong. To many people today, thinking that way seems at best antiquated, like listening to music on a gramophone or something, but probably actually kind of backward and offensive, like putting a statue of an Aborigine with a spear in your front garden, like people still sometimes did where I grew up in Newcastle in the 80s. By the way, I see that the church cat is here. Don't let her distract you too much. Now, of course, not all churches hold that classic Christian view anymore. There are churches who have adopted a whole range of different views. A church just down the road made a decision last year to become what they call an affirming church. And there are many who urge those who continue to hold the classic Christian view or some version of it, many who urge them to go on and give it up, to see that it is damaging and unwelcome, unwelcoming, excluding those who don't fit a narrow heteronormative mould that is oppressive and unrealistic. Debate over these issues continues to divide the Anglican Church around the world. Well, you'd be pleased to know, today I pr propose to resolve all these issues. No, no, of course not. Uh, today I only aim to do something quite limited, which is to show where what I've called the classic Christian position comes from. I want to kind of excavate the logic of classic Christian sexual ethics. There will be lots of questions we cannot cover today or can only touch on. Uh, my main goal is just to understand, to make sure we understand where the foundations lie. The reason for doing this, like easy origami, is twofold. I, just, I really like that joke and it lightens the mood. The first reason is that I think these foundations are less well understood than we often assume. I reckon even many Christians have only some vague sense of the logic of, you know, what they believe about ethics or, or don't know if they believe, and if pressed, they'd struggle to explain it. The second reason is simply that our journey through Genesis leads us to it. If this is like your first time here tonight, you should know it's not, we don't talk about this every week or anything, but we have got to it in the Bible and that's good. The scene of Adam meeting Eve that we reached last week has been foundational for Christian thinking about sex because of the way it places marriage right at the beginning in the goodness of God's creation. But the main passage we are going to look at today is not actually Genesis, but our second passage from Mark's Gospel, the second one that Beck read, in which Jesus refers to the Genesis passage. He refers back to the Genesis passage in a discussion of relating to divorce. This passage in Mark is really significant because it shows that Jesus thought that what we see in Genesis at the beginning has ongoing significance. Jesus tells us that Genesis is not just an ideal beginning that is nice but no longer relevant. It is a pattern that ought to shape our thinking and action today. So what we're going to do is to look first at Jesus' teaching in Mark 10. Here's an overview. And the way he draws on Genesis. Then we're going to try to clarify the logic of what he says and what it means. 
And then finally, we'll try to get clear on some of its implications. Uh, I should make really clear, though, that because the aim of this sermon is primarily to understand the logic of Christian sexual ethics, I won't be able to deal any cultural questions and difficult personal questions uh, that will come into view in various ways. Uh, I'm particularly conscious, actually, uh, that the discussion of divorce touches a lot of people uh, painfully. A lot of people part of this church uh, touches my own life. Uh, my, my parents divorced when I was a teenager, and I know from experience how hard it can be to hear divorce talked about in abstract. The same is probably true for other aspects of the conversation we'll have this evening. I just want to emphasize that although I will talk about various things, this is not a sermon about all the ethics of divorce and other things. Many questions that arise will have to wait to be chased down in their own time. Okay, well, let's begin then with Jesus' teaching about marriage. Uh, Jesus is asked a question. The passage in your outlines will be helpful to have before you, though I'll put up the key text on the screen. Jesus is asked a question about divorce. He's asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, he's asked this by the Pharisees, who were like the more rigorous teachers of Jesus' day. Now, the question probably relates to a, deba a, a debate we know that existed between, we know existed between two schools of the Pharisees about uh, divorce. One school held that divorce was only lawful uh, for very serious transgressions, adultery, basically. And another school held that divorce was lawful even for very trivial offences, maybe just like burning the dinner. That is actually the example that uh, is used. Um, all of this discussion, though, was built upon one key passage in the law of Israel, the Torah. That passage was Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. This is what they're talking about when Jesus asks, what did Moses command you? And they reply, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Notice it is the man, it's because it's very, the gender power imbalance was very real at the time. Now, the mention of the certificate is worth noticing because that is actually what Deuteronomy 24 is about. The focus of Deuteronomy 24 is not actually the lawfulness of divorce as such. The focus is how divorces should be implemented. Uh, you can have a look at the passage in your own time if you want. The, the point is, is just that Deuteronomy 24 is not a law setting out all the circumstances where divorce is lawful. Rather, it's a law that assumes the reality of divorce. Divorces are happening, and it seeks to regulate that in various ways. And Jesus says that's really important. Because it means, he says, that the law, Deuteronomy, is the wrong place to start if we really want to know what is truly right and wrong in relation to marriage. Look at what he says in verse 5. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, quote, God made them male and female. Then another quote, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So Jesus goes on, they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Deuteronomy 24 does not show us, Jesus says, God's intention for marriage. 
It only shows us the reality of our own sinfulness. It was a law given because your hearts were hard, he says. That is to regulate and to contain the damage caused by our selfishness. If we really want to know about the rights and wrongs of marriage and divorce, Jesus says, we need to begin further back at the beginning of creation. Notice a few things about what Jesus does in this passage. First, notice that Jesus quotes both chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis. The first quotation, God made them male and female, is from chapter 1, verse 27, where, as we read a couple of weeks ago, it says, God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's the first quotation, and then he links it to a second quotation from chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 24, the passage we read before. Secondly, notice that what Jesus has done by drawing these two quotations together is explicitly to link marriage to God's creation of humanity as male and female. He tells us that this is what the words, that is why, this is what they refer to. They refer to God's creation of humanity as male and female. That is why, Jesus says, marriage arises. If Jesus hadn't done this, it would have been possible maybe to read Genesis 2 differently. We might have been able to read that little phrase, that is why, which is there in the original Hebrew as well. We might have been able to refer it as referring perhaps to Adam's feelings about Eve or his delight in her. And then we might have been able to say that marriage arises because of feelings of love. That is why marriage is there. But Jesus tells us that's not the case. Marriage arises, is made possible and exists because God created humanity as male and female. Third, notice how Jesus then draws out the significance of these quotations. So, he says, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. That's also important because it makes it clear that the nature of the beginning, <coughs> if Jesus hadn't said this, it would have been really unclear how the beginning should impact us now. We might have concluded that the point was just to lament that we were no longer in that situation anymore. Isn't that a shame? But Jesus makes it clear that the nature of the beginning does have ongoing significance. It shapes our understanding of what marriages are, even now. They are the creation, he says, of a new kind of union called one flesh. And it should shape our action here and now, and specifically here, Jesus says, it means we should not separate marriages. Okay, that's the shape of what Jesus says. Let's now take some time to try and understand the logic of it. I'm just having a drink of water because I've got a bit of a cough. Sorry. Now let's try and clarify the logic of it. So notice first that the logic of what Jesus says is not the logic of tradition. Tradition is about what is known, what is tried and tested, and this does have authority sometimes. Tradition often, though not always, deserves respect. Sometimes people assume that what I've called the classic Christian position is all about this. 
right? This is its claim, right? That this is the traditional position. The word classic kind of implies that, doesn't it? Um, and there is a reason for this, because to a certain extent, this view is traditional. It's the kind of thing many of our great-grandparents probably assumed, though in a few decades, I bet it won't feel traditional anymore. But the argument Jesus makes is not an argument from tradition. In fact, Jesus is going against tradition. He rejects the terms of the debate being had in his day, and he says that the whole tradition is corrupted. And that means that the logic at the heart of Christian sexual ethics is not just the logic of tradition, that this is what is tried and tested. It is a much challenged tradition as well as affirm it. That there was a beginning that ought to continue to shape our thinking and action even today, and that can stand over traditions critically. In the second place, notice that the logic of what Jesus says is also not the logic of desire or love. I've touched on this already, but I need to bring it out again, because this is the other way we easily think today. We think that the crucial factor when it comes to sexual ethics is love. And that love is what justifies marriage. People often same-sex marriage because love is love, isn't it? But Jesus is not talking about love. He talks about God's creation of humanity as male and female. That doesn't mean he didn't care about love. Doesn't mean he didn't think it was important. He did. But it does mean that he didn't think the logic of marriage was the logic of love. Now, the logic of what Jesus says is the logic of a beginning structured purposefully by God that ought to continue to be respected. Jesus tells us that marriage is not just a human invention, but something given from creation that relates not accidentally, but essentially to the reality of male and female. Marriage arises, Jesus says, as a unique response to God's creation of humanity as male and female. And sexual intercourse is given to form and seal this unique bond of man and woman in marriage. The man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and they become one flesh. A new family established through a decisive movement and sealed with sexual union. Let me make two further comments about this before we move on. First, it's important to recognize that Jesus is not saying marriage is not a human institution at all. Jesus was speaking to people whose thinking about marriage was shaped by the law of Moses and the traditions that had grown up around that. Now, Jesus does say those traditions don't enough reflect God's original purpose for marriage, but he doesn't deny that they exist or that they have importance or that they shape things in various ways. That's important because the plain fact is that marriage is also a human institution. It's something we have laws about and we regulate in all sorts of ways, and it has to be that way. There's no way to avoid making laws about things like the age of the conditions under which a marriage is valid and the, the um, administration of divorce and so on. Every human society builds up 
its own version or versions of marriage. We saw this when we looked at 1 Peter, if you hear when we looked at that letter. Peter talks about marriage as a human institution. Because in the Roman world, as in ours, marriage had a particular form and shape. Peter says that these human institutions have their own authority that deserves their own kind of limited respect. And Jesus' point is not to deny any of that, but to remind us that underneath the human institutions of marriage, there is a created order that authorizes and judges them. Secondly, the purpose of Jesus' teaching is not to tell us that we shouldn't have any difficulties with marriage. Notice that Jesus doesn't say that Moses' law regulating divorce, he doesn't say that it was unnecessary. He doesn't say, oh, if only you'd paid attention to the beginning, you wouldn't need that law. No, he says that that law was given because your hearts were hard. And the implication is that it's going to be a tragic necessity. Jesus is not trying to get us to pretend that we are still in the Garden of Eden, as if our lives and our families and our culture are not affected by all kinds of complexity and damage and selfishness. Jesus does teach that the reality of the beginning ought still to shape our action. But he is fully aware that we are not now in that original situation where it all came easily. In particular, I think it's important to be clear that Jesus' teaching does not imply that the reality of male and female will never be complicated for anyone or that everyone's desires will automatically match the structure of male-female marriage. In Jesus' day, there were people known as eunuchs whose genitalia was damaged or unusually formed or removed. In our day, we are aware of a range of rare intersex conditions, as well as psychological conditions in which the reality of male and female is very difficult. We are also, of course, deeply aware that it is not unusual for people to experience sexual desires for people of the same sex. By saying that in the beginning God made them male and female and that for this reason marriage arises as a permanent sexual union, Jesus is not denying the reality of any of that experience. But he is saying that the nature of that beginning should still structure our thinking and action here and now in the midst of our more complex situation. Okay, well, what do we have to say about that? Where does that leave us? Well, as I said at the beginning, the purpose of this sermon is not to try to chase down all our questions, but to try to get clear about the foundations. So all I want to do now is to point in a few directions that this leads us. First and briefly, I hope that we will now be clearer, even if you don't agree, you'll at least understand it a bit more, about why many Christians, including me, opposed same-sex marriage. I was living overseas during the plebiscite and didn't play any part in it, actually, uh, but I had previously written about it. This, my, my, some of, I've done some writing in ethics, um, 
And I did think that the change to the law was a mistake. It was a mistake simply because it was a change that obscures the character of creation and God's purposes. But laws relating to marriage are never perfect in any society, and so our task now is simply to keep working out how we can honour marriage and bear witness to God's purpose in the context we're in now. Secondly, I hope it will also make sense why Christians continue to care about divorce and to be uneasy about it. Certainly, this is the reality for the Anglican Church in Sydney. If people want to remarry, I have to get permission from the Archbishop. It involves conversations that are not easy for the couple or for me. We are open to people remarrying because we think the Bible recognises that marriages can be broken. Jesus did not say what God has joined together no one can separate. He said, don't do it. And sometimes things are broken in a way that makes separation the better course of action. You may remember that I made very clear in my sermon on 1 Peter 3, but if you weren't here for it, let me just say it now, that someone in a situation of domestic violence is not obliged to stay there. But we do still, as a church, aim to have processes that honour God's intention, that marriages be lifelong, and that recognises that all divorces are tragic and some are wrong. By the same token, this church, and many like it, continue to believe that marriage is the proper home for sexual activity. Sex is designed to seal the one flesh union of a man and a woman in marriage. And so it is there that sex belongs. And our pastoral care as a church is guided by that principle. We believe that those who are not in this union, and this includes even those in romantic relationships, or perhaps engaged to be married. They are called to celibacy, or to what we could call chaste singleness. Chastity being the traditional name for the virtue of sexual purity. It's actually a good word. It shouldn't sound so awful. Now, I'm very aware, very aware, that for many people, that way of thinking that I've just described is madness. Can anyone really think that in 2023? It's also a bit rich and, in fact, kind of awful coming from me, a married man. Well, as we come to the end, let me just make three comments in response to that objection. First, in relation to the point about it coming from me, let me say that at one level that's a perfectly reasonable criticism. That's why it's important that it's not just me talking about this. It's important for others, too, to bear witness to these things, and I'm thankful that others are bearing witness. As one reason, I'm so grateful to have a colleague like Cares, a single woman, and have somebody as thoughtful as Danny Treweek, a theologian who works on these issues and is in the morning congregation, also a single woman, in our congregation helping articulate the logic of these things. But also let me say that the crucial thing is not whether this is coming from me, but whether you think it's coming from God. Everything I'm saying assumes that Jesus' words matter because they're from the Lord. 
And each one of us needs to seek to understand the scripture and to ask themselves, what do I really think God wants of me? My hope is that what, what I'm saying today will help you do that rather than hinder it. That's my first comment. My second comment is to notice an aspect of the way we think about these issues that makes the classic position I've articulated kind of harder to stomach, and that is the way we think about sexual desire. Somehow or other, the story is long and complicated and I'm still trying to work it out myself, but somehow or other, we've got ourselves in a position where sexual desires and feelings have a profound existential weight and significance. Sometimes at least, they have come to feel like they define who we are at our deepest. A part of the reason for this is a long cultural process where we've learnt that if we want to find ourselves, we have to look inward. People didn't used to think that really. Another part is that we have learnt narratives that can give shape to our experience in very particular ways. But the upshot is that our sexuality has become very important to us. Now, I don't want to pretend that sexuality is unimportant or that we can just magically see things differently. As we will see over the coming weeks in Genesis, struggles with sex have been part of human life almost from the beginning. At the end of Genesis 2, at the end of our reading, we heard of Adam and Eve being naked and without shame. But that innocence was shattered, as we will see, and human life was flooded with a shame that is hard to pin down, but that we feel in our sexuality. But I do believe it is possible for these things to feel very different. It is possible for sexuality and sexual desire not to loom so large in our sense of ourselves. It is possible to treat our inner sense of ourselves not as who we really are, but just another piece of the puzzle. And it's possible to sit loose to the stories we have about ourselves in the confidence that whoever we are, we are known and loved by Jesus. That's another whole conversation, but it is one I hope to keep having. My final comment, though, is to push back against the assumption that we know better about sex these days. I think this assumption is very common. People think we are much more enlightened about sex these days than in previous generations when people used to be very repressed. If we can say anything about our society, it's that we've made progress on sex. Well, I think that's a load of horse manure. I don't even need to tell you about Michel Foucault's astute observations about the way the stories we tell about repression and liberation function rhetorically in our culture. Instead, I can just point us to the horrific catastrophe unfolding around us because of our utterly stupid embrace of pornography. Since we decided around 2007 that it would be a good idea for almost everyone, including teenagers, to have devices perfectly designed to deliver images and videos in private, we have seen a proliferation of pornography 
more extensive and destructive than anything in the history of the world. As one commentator put it, a 13-year-old with a smartphone has greater access to pornography than the most depraved deviant could have dreamed possible two decades ago. Now, some of you are already tuning out, and you're thinking, yeah, yeah, we've heard this. Whatever. Don't tune out, because we keep underestimating the damage of this. We are living in the midst of a fast-moving catastrophe. Menacing sexual harassment has become normal for many high school girls. Children are increasingly sexually assaulted by other children. Many teenagers think choking during sex is normal when it's actually a red flag for homicide. Intimate partner rape has risen exponentially in the last few years. There is a clear and well-established connection, correlation at least, I think, between early exposure to pornography and sex offending. Yet our efforts as a society to do anything are utterly hopeless. Porn stars are hired to teach schoolchildren about consent, and pro-porn academics produce porn resources for schools. We think we are advanced when it comes to sex. I reckon it would be closer to the truth to say we are one of the most sexually degraded and damaged societies in the history of the world. Perhaps before we scoff at old-fashioned ideas, we should take a bit longer to look at ourselves and how broken we are. You know, when Jesus said what he said in our reading to the Pharisees and to his disciples who were also listening, I imagine there were at least two reactions. One reaction would have been disbelief and irritation. Let no one separate in what universe is he living? What a waste of time. Another reaction, though, was to be cut to the heart. We know some, at least, of the disciples reacted this way to Jesus' teaching about divorce. They said, well, if that's true, it's better not to marry. But what they meant was, how the hell are we going to live up to that? You might feel like this too, dismayed and overwhelmed. You might feel the tragedy of your own failures, your own weaknesses. You might feel the mess and ugliness of your own desires and habits. And this clean, neat vision of the garden of male and female, naked and unashamed, might seem only like a neon sign pointing out how lost you are. But remember... Please, please remember, if you only hear one thing in the sermon, hear this. Jesus didn't live in the garden either. He could have. He deserved to. But he didn't. He came into our world. He came into our mess. He lived a life beset by all manner of temptations. He did not marry he was a virgin. And he gave himself over to be abused and ruined by the cruelty of others. His naked, violated body hung exposed to all on the cross. A vision of shame. 
so that there could be forgiveness and healing for us. So that we might be washed, justified, saved. So that we might be presented to him at the end, the Bible says, as his bride, pure and clean. That too is a whole other story, but it is where all this leads and we mustn't forget it. Christians do and should remember that there was a beginning that still shapes the way we're called to live now. We've spent a lot of time on that tonight, but much, much more must we remember that there is grace for the guilty, cleansing for the filthy, honour for the ashamed, through Jesus Christ. If this reminder of how God made things in the beginning, if it leaves you mourning... Join the club and know that Jesus is for you and so is his church. So is this church. Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.